Just thinking about you guys today, and I'm just encouraged by what God's doing here in our church, and and you guys, you know, just taking this season to just put those roots down deep in a good foundation, um, as we've been doing a lot of doctrine stuff. Um, I look forward to the springtime. We'll probably be doing more like some practical ministry teachings and things like that. Adam Poole, who's the school of ministry director in Corvallis, I'm actually going to speak there tomorrow. Uh, he's coming over in May to share with us and um, still got some feelers out for some other guest speakers and stuff. But um, this, is, this is a good season, though, to be going through doctrine. And Paul tells Timothy to take heed to that doctrine. So that's what we're doing right now. And uh, kind of the progression of our series that we're doing has gone um, creation and man being made in the image of God. And then last week, hopefully some of you got to be here that uh, Johnny's teaching on creation, science, and that was just cool to just um, affirm scripture, you know, and uh, have scripture affirm science, you know. And uh, it's really encouraging and exciting, all of that. So we're kind of moving on and just looking at um, some soteriology, which is the study of salvation, God's plan for salvation. And we're going to start with, like, the bad news, which is the fall and sin. And um, we're going to be in Genesis 3 for the most part tonight, although we'll move around a little bit and end up in James some. And... um, I'm going to do my notes a little different tonight in a different program. So, um, Oh, also, uh, down at Leandra's end is a meal sign-up sheet. And so, uh, you know, we started out the year and we're like, oh, we're not going to do meals. And, uh, I, you know, I found that as we had some snacks or desserts, uh, a lot of you would come in from a hard day of work and, you, you know, I mean, Martinez was like throwing down cupcakes, you know, just like, I haven't eaten today, you know, and, and uh, Kevin and myself. And, and so um, it just seems good, you know, to, to be able to have a meal here together. So um, if you could help with that, that would be great. I love cooking and I love serving this way. I think it's a gift that the Lord's given me. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but. You know, I have that kind of that hospitality. But, you know, I was just kind of convicted today. I wanted to put a lot more depth of study into my studying today. And I found myself in the kitchen, you know, afraid that the bacon was going to light a grease fire. And, you know, and so the Lord was just reminding me, you know, of just the, the role of an elder. You know, he needs to be giving himself to the word and to prayer. And um, I feel like I neglected that a bit today, you know. <laughs> and so... Um, would encourage maybe some of you guys to help out with that and uh, maybe sign up for a meal or some bread or something like that. I'll still, I'd love to do it every now and then, but uh, want to share that wealth a little bit. Um, I hope to do just, uh, even if it's three of us, a small pastor's panel today and maybe go through a couple um, blogs or something and have the elders, you know, speak some thoughts into the blogs and the, the, uh, the writings and things like that. But uh, anyways, tonight we're looking at the doctrine of sin and the fall of man. And we're going to see tonight where sin came from. Does everybody have one of the sign-up or the 
the sheets here. Okay. Um, Jason, would you grab me a cup of water? I'm feeling a little parched. Thank you. Um, sin is described in the Bible. Look, can we pray first? That's probably a good idea. Lord, um, I just I wish we had more times on nights like this to just um, just have some intimate time of prayer and worship, and maybe that's something we need to do a, a few nights um, in this course is just wait on you and, and just hear your callings on our lives and and just be edified that way, Lord. And and just where there's a lack of that tonight, Lord, we just pray your grace would just super abound upon us and just let your spirit just um, meet us here, Lord. Uh, just pray that what happens here would just go forth to the nations, Lord. Uh, as I was studying today, just thinking about what Jesus said in the Great Commission, uh, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all the things that I have commanded you. And so, Lord, it just was exciting to go through the doctrine today and to just think, wow, we're, we're being taught the things that you taught us, Lord. And so as discipleship is happening here, God, uh, we just pray your spirit would um, speak through me and empower me and bring to remembrance the things that I've studied, Lord, from your word and, and go beyond that even, Lord. We're just, I'm weak there. And uh, Lord, give us all minds to understand. I think of how many people here have said, man, my mind just gets stretched. I just miss so much of what is said. As Chad said, it's like drinking out of a fire hose and Lord, would you help us with that tonight? Just help us to comprehend some nuggets of uh, who you are and who we are. And um, be glorified, Lord. Let this tonight be just a demonstration of your spirit and of power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, sin is described in the Bible as transgression of the law of God. 1 John 3, 4. And rebellion against God, Deuteronomy and in Joshua. So transgression and rebellion. The effects of sin are sad and devastating, horrible things, including abuse, rape, molesting, parents leaving, divorce, cheating, disease from unfaithfulness, miscarriages. If you're a historian at all, you know, just studying the world wars and the wars that would end all wars, that actually just led to more wars and genocide, just so sad, tragedy, natural disasters, all of this is the effect of sin. What is sin? In Genesis 1.31, we read that things were very good. The Hebrew word shalom is used to describe this, that there was wholeness and perfection. Everything was as it should be, with beauty, honor, love, reconciliation. There was no war, no famine, no disease, tears, suffering, loss, mourning, funerals. There were no locks. <laughs> there was no need. There were no police or jails or soldiers. There was no need for these things. Everything was shalom. And everything that is not shalom is the result of sin. 
It's the vandalizing, the attacking, and the war on peace or shalom. As we read through the text, you remember from our How to Study the Bible, we always want to look for uh, what's not shalom, which would be called the fallen condition or the fallen condition focus. And whenever you're reading through the epistles, through the gospels, whenever you're forming a Bible study, you look for the, the bad news so that you can bring out the good news, all right? And when I'm preaching the gospel um, open air or if I'm in Brazil uh, or, or wherever it might be, I remember in Brazil the Lord kind of giving me this message to speak that just kind of people could understand. And I would say, you know, all, there's all these street vendors there that are selling jewelry and diamonds. And, and, uh, and I just trying to speak to the people to get their minds thinking. I'd say, you know, um, I want to give you the bad news, and then I want to give you the good news. Just like a street vendor lays out the black velvet or the black garment, you know, before he sets out the glorious gem or the beautiful gem. And that's the same thing as we share the gospel. You know, there's, we need people to understand that there's blackness, there's a darkness, there's a thing called sin. Uh, there's the falling short of the glory of God. And, uh, and that darkness just makes... The, the beautiful diamond look all that more radiant and stick out. And of course, that's the glorious gem of the gospel that we're referring to. And so as we're doing a Bible study, we look for what is the black part. We look for what is the not shalom, okay, the fallen condition. And as we're preaching a Bible study, we don't just leave it at the fallen condition. Uh, and have you seen the sandwich board holders in the big cities, you know, that, that say, you know, you're going to hell, you know, you're a sinner. And I remember it was an anniversary date that Lindsay and I took in, uh, in Portland, and we heard yelling like a couple blocks away, screaming. And as we walked a couple blocks, there was a, a girl with a sandwich board on, and uh, she was shouting across the street at some men, and she was like, you know, you're all going to hell, you're a bunch of sinners, and they were, it just rubbed them the wrong way, and they began cursing at her, and she cursed back at them, and it was just this horrible, horrible, you know, ambassador for Jesus there. Kind of learned what not to do, and tact not to use. And so we don't just leave it at that you're going to hell, and you're a sinner. We always, and as, as well as the scripture always, brings about the plan for redemption, which we'll get to next week, Right? But, uh, but today, the fallen condition and the absence of shalom and the showing up of sin. Jesus comes as the prince of peace. He comes as the prince of shalom. As sin shows up with suffering, injustice, boredom, annoyances, and anonymous things. That's also the lack of shalom. Uh, annoyances, miseries, fear, sorrow, illness, pain, grief, despair, nuisance, tragedies, and death. The Bible uses a lot of different images to talk about sin. Rebellion, folly, self-abuse, madness, hatred, wandering from the truth, irrationality, blindness, deafness, a hard heart, pride, selfishness, stiff-neckedness, Delusion. I think there's somewhere in the scripture that, that speaks of shrugging the shoulders. So there's hard-heartedness, there's stiff-neckedness, and there's shrugging the shoulders against God. There's delusion and treason and unreasonableness and self-worship, missing the mark, wandering from the path, spiritual adultery, idolatry, 
get a functional definition of sin tonight so that Jesus dying on the cross shows us how much he loves us. Dying on the cross for our sins of Jesus doing that means nothing to us if we don't have an understanding of what sin really is and how, uh, you know, what's the song that we sing? I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. To, to get a real idea of sin, a functional definition of sin, there are sins of omission, which is not doing what you're supposed to do. Okay, so we've been called to preach the gospel. We've been called to make disciples. We've been called to be lights, all right? Uh, when we're not doing these things, uh, we're in sin by not doing what we're called to do. And then there's the opposite of that, sins of commission, which is we're doing what we're not supposed to do. We've been forbidden to do this. We've been called out from among the world, and yet we're behaving as the world. So we're committing sin. I'm omitting sin. I'm committing sin. Sins can count as thoughts, words, deeds, and motives. Sin is godlessness. It's ignoring God. Sin is idolatry. It's giving yourself to something other than Jesus. Or it's exchanging Jesus for something else. Sin can be crimes. Crimes are a sin. But sins can also be non-crimes. The police won't arrest you for your lust. In your heart anyways. Depends on where you go with that lust. It won't arrest you for adultery or coveting or lying. Oh, new format. iPad's all over the place here. Sin can be the breaking of laws, God's laws, humans' laws, authority, the laws of the authority. Hey, Kev. Now, some of those authorities that God's placed in our life are our teachers in our school systems or the church leadership or pastors and, uh, and, you know, it's the breaking of the laws that God has placed over us is sin. It's breaking of our conscience. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. Or to him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, the scriptures tell us. Sin is perversion or making something crooked. That's what perverted means is crooked. It's using a good thing as sin. Technology is a good example of this. Something that's good that can be used for absolutely wicked. If you're into Star Wars, so darn Wookiees or what? I don't know. I don't really know anything about Star Wars. Okay. Uh, technology is a, is a great example of how we can take something that is good and make it bad. Thank you. Pollution. Perversion, pollution, taking something that is good and adding something evil to make it defiled or impure. Sin is turning a good thing into a God where we begin to live for money and love money. The love of money is what's the root of all evil. We live for that power and that achievement. We live for sex, for glory, for intelligence, for family, for comfort. Live for our home as the end. Romans 1, 28 through 32 is a key New Testament passage that gets to the heart of what sin really is. 
It says in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And I actually want to go back just a little bit uh, in Romans there. I was listening to it today and something stuck out to me from Romans 1. If you go... What verse is it where it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Oh, verse 18. So if I would have just kept reading. Oh, no, that's 28. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, In verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Then it goes into how creation shows. uh, The Lord shows himself through creation. So men have a knowledge of God deep in their heart, and they suppress the truth. They push that down. They shrug their shoulders against God. They stiffen their neck against God. They suppress the truth and what they know of God. It's been made known to them. And so because of that, verse 28, there in your notes, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. And this is just this deep part of you know, God's sovereignty over sin. Perhaps this is a place where we see the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit taking place in this person's heart, and the Lord just gives them what they want, gives them over to sin gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. We just have this list of uh, some of the more heinous sins. Uh, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents. We see that that is in the list of Romans 1 sins here. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so we have this giving over of people as they knew what God, who God was in their hearts, in their conscience. Uh, they suppressed that. Uh, they, uh, get, uh, let's see, so they dep- suppressed the truth. Uh, and in Romans 1, we see the de-godding of God. We see what happens when we exchange worship that belongs to the Creator, and we give it to the created thing. That's something that we see earlier on in Chapter 1 as well. We could have just read the whole chapter. Um, verse 21 tells us, um, They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they came, became futile in their hearts. And then down in verse 25, we see that they exchanged the truth of God 
for the lie. And that's that. That's this big de-godding of God that happens. It's this big shift. It's this big idolatry that takes place where uh, exchanging truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creator for worshiping and serving the created thing. It's this big idolatry that takes place in every one of these sins. It happened at that point, when, and it, we're going to see it in Genesis 3 account here, as uh, Adam and Eve do the exact same thing, where they know God, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They knew God, but they suppressed that. And uh, as John Calvin says, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of these lists of sins here that we read in Romans chapter 1, it's just... It's just idols being popped out of our hearts, you know. And it's like we exchange God and his truth and his glory and uh, for these lies, for all of these different things. Sin can be establishing. By the way, if you have a bunch of boxes on your notes, do you guys have those? Did those show up? Tons of boxes. That's from my old Microsoft Word, and I have new Microsoft Word, and I couldn't figure out in the new Word how to get those off of there. So, Sorry. See how technology is just the root of all sin? Okay, I just want to apologize for that. Sin can be establishing your identity in anything other than Jesus. Now, as we look at sin, is all sin equal? Is all sin the same? Does God hate all sin the same? It's all an offense to him, an offense to God. It's all falling short of his glory, James tells us that if you keep the whole entire law, but you stumble at any one point, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law the same. We see in Matthew chapter 5 that you know, if you lust, in a, with a, uh, lust for a woman in your heart, uh, that it's the same thing as committing adultery. We see that that's actually, lust is actually the kernel of sin, of adultery. It has the same kernel there. Uh, so while it's true that you know they are all all sins are an offense to God, they all separate us from God. They are all falling short of the glory of God. Not all sin is equally devastating by its effects. First uh, Timothy chapter five tells us if someone neglects their family, any man that does not provide for the needs of his family is worse than a non-believer. So sometimes that sin there, I mean, that's like seen and it's con the consequences of that sin. Uh, it's horrible on the whole family, on the children. There's a sin that leads to death. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 tells us, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. And so there appears to be a sin that leads to death. And Ananias and Sapphira are an example of that in uh, Acts chapter 5. You know, their sin was uh, done at such a time in church history where an example needed to be made. And uh, they were struck down for lying to the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and the rest of the church feared. And uh, there was a refining work that happened in the church there in Acts chapter 5. The, a sexually immoral man... Uh, that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who had his father's wife, we see that he was to be turned over uh, to uh, Satan for the destruction of his flesh, a sin leading to death, so that his soul might be saved. It's like in God's mercy, 
that he would die then. Okay, so we just studied that a couple weeks ago in Sunday morning. If you haven't uh, studied that in a while, you can uh, listen to that if you missed that teaching. There's also the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven uh, men. And the context in Matthew chapter 12 is that uh, the Pharisees were calling what Jesus was doing evil. They were actually saying that what Jesus was doing was the work of Satan and that he was the king of of the demons, and that's how he was doing these things. And so that's the context of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, calling what what God has done, what the Spirit of God is doing, is something that's actually evil. And we see that that's that's a place that the heart gets to. These Pharisees were at at that place, and Jesus condemns it right then and there. Uh, there are these degrees of devastation from sin. And so if you're in Genesis chapter 3, just looking through the whole chapter tonight, we're going to glean a little bit from Adam and Eve's sin to, to see ourselves and our own fallen condition and see God's plan to redeem us from that uh, in the weeks to come. But uh, I don't think anyone comprehends the depths of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. There's times we read it like it's a fairy tale or a myth or something. We don't remember that it, this is history. This is historical narrative here. Uh, this actually happened. This is, um, as uh, Alistair Begg says, actually, if you search and research, you will be hard-pressed to find in all of ancient literature any other piece of writing that gives an explanation for the origin of sin and misery in the world. Whether you accept this explanation or not, you must accept that, it, that an explanation is offered. And so here's a, an ancient book that gives us an explanation for sin and misery. And we can use it, and it's truth. We know that. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, sorry, I leapfrogged there, says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you, must, you may freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so there's the uh, preface to the fall here in Genesis 3, 1, where we read of the serpent. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and said to the woman, Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, or you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. So we have the serpent introduced, and he is more cunning than any beast of the field. This word cunning means that he's crafty in a bad way. Russell's children's Bible, I love it, how it's, he's called the sneaky snake. <laughs> you know, So in our home, we often talk about the sneaky snake. Uh, The devil is crafty, clever. He's smarter than we are. He's been around longer. He's seen more and has destroyed more men that are smarter than you. We'll read of that a little bit later in Proverbs. I think it's chapter 7. Who is this sneaky snake? In Revelation 12, 9, we read of the great dragon. Kind of sneaky. The great dragon who was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. 
He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, the context in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, I believe, is this is during the tribulation period, after the second half of the tribulation period, that he's being cast out of heaven. This isn't referring to his original fall that we'll read of in just a little bit in Isaiah 14, but this is actually midway through the tribulation period uh, where he's cast out. And, and what's that? So you remember that, no problem, you remember in the book of Job where Satan is allowed into the presence of the Lord and he goes there and he accuses the brethren day and night. It's what he does and he was working that out in Job's life, trying to do that with Job. Uh, And we see that it's in Revelation chapter 12 that he's no longer given access there and a big war in heaven takes place, uh, kicking him out for good. The word devil means that he's that slanderer. He's the deceiver of the whole world, we just read in Revelation 12, 9. And so let's read of that fall of Lucifer here, the sneaky snake. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, um, are you reading along, Lindsay? You want to read it? Yeah, read that Isaiah passage. Um, how? The whole passage? Yeah, or it's the uh, 12 through 17 there. And then we have another account of Lucifer's fall in Ezekiel 28. Leander, do you want to read that? Sure. Or we could split it in half, but... Okay.
So just um, an incredible passage there with this dual fulfillment. Prophesied over the king of Tyre and then goes into, you know, what was happening and what happened with Lucifer there. And uh, just incredible, um, you know, through this passage, uh, many believe that Lucifer was like this worship leader angel in heaven. Yeah, Paul. Um, that's a good question, but it probably just speaks of the, and I'm, I haven't done the verse by verse study on this yet, but we know that pride filled his heart, like clear back in, you know, verse 13 of that Isaiah 14 passage. Um, he said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. This pride that filled his heart, he wanted to be called God. You know, he wanted to be uh, given the worship. And so, um, we see the outflow of that and all that uh, Ezekiel prophesied there uh, as well. Iniquity was found in you. Um, and then violence came out of that, you know, and we see that uh, out of everything that we talked about at the beginning of the study today, all forms of uh, destruction and everything was a result of that, including the Garden of Eden fall and sin. So, um yeah, just amazing to see just the beginning of it there in uh, Lucifer's fall. Uh, we don't really know when this happened. Uh, it could have been between verses 1 and 2. Uh, we read there in the Ezekiel passage that he was in uh, the garden of the Lord, you know. Uh, so, not sure exactly when this happened, but uh, the beginning of the sin was with... Oh, go for it. You know. Oh, thanks. Not parched anymore. Is there a fill in the blank somewhere? Lucifer. Come on, people. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> children. Oh, yes. Come on, children. <laughs> no one's going to correct these anyways. Write whatever you want. <laughs> Some, someone just rebuked me over here. I don't know who it was. Um... Okay, so I look forward to the day when we finally get to Isaiah and I get to study it like in depth, verse by verse. I'm going to be 90, but you know. Um, and so we read uh, back in our passage, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, so his question to Eve was, has God indeed said? Okay. Now, I like, highlight this, underline it, because this is at the root of, of all sin. All right. Um, Satan will always try and get you to question God's word. And then he will twist what God has said to fit his agenda of getting you to fall. Happens all the time. All the time. Okay. We see it in many of our meetings that we have here at the church. Just elders meetings, actually. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we have good elders. They don't twist the words uh, that much. He also misquotes the word. Notice how he says, you shouldn't eat of every tree in the garden. Or another translation says, hasn't the Lord said that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? So he changed one word and twisted it up. Like crazy. And he does that in the Gospels as well when he's trying to tempt Jesus. He takes scriptures out of context 
and Jesus uh, corrects, corrects it, all right? And so, man, we need to know the Word of God, all right? We need to be memorizing it. We need to know it. It's a sword, right? Um, and so uh, we take the Bible literally, okay? Um, the, if the first sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense, all right? And as Driscoll says, so gently, anything else is satanic, okay? <laughs> uh, this isn't what God had said. He said you could eat of all the trees of the garden except for one. And we see how the sneaky snake, the shifty deceiver, his, his name is slander. Revelation calls him the deceiver. We see him coming up and doing the same thing all throughout Scripture. One example is in First Chronicles 21.1. And it's interesting because in the Samuel passage that's parallel to it, well, let me read in First Chronicles 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Does anybody go like, what? Does anybody know the history there or what? The Samuel passage says what? Yeah, the census, all right? That the Lord was angry with Israel and he called David to number all right? And we just see God's sovereignty, God's allowing things to happen for correction, God's working through it. Job even says at the end of the book of Job, he says that God was behind these things that had happened to me. All right? God is sovereign, all right? And, uh, and I don't totally know how it works, but God is sovereign, and he actually uses Satan to chastise and to correct Israel through David taking the census, and what's believed is that he sinned in his heart and got prideful in the numbers, all right? And, um, and actually in the first Samuel passage, no, maybe it's the first Chronicles. I just read it today. Uh, Joab begged David not to take the census, okay? Um, but the Chronicles says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So we see him taking this stand to begin to deceive and to begin to move towards sin. And we see it in the garden in the Genesis 3 account in verse 1. Genesis 3, 2 and 3 says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So, Eve knew God's standard in her heart, but in trying to defend it, she adds to his word. And she added the word, touch it. All right? This isn't what the Lord had said. When someone who is divisive or gossipy or pressuring comes up, don't engage them. That's option number one. Don't engage. She should have walked away, turned away, fled from the devil and towards God. We don't need to be in league with Satan. There's nothing to be gained. She could have rebuked him. Although in the Jude account of uh, Michael fighting against Satan for the body of Moses, uh, it's actually Michael the archangel says, the Lord rebuke you, knowing where the true power came from. She became confused when she allowed conflicting voices to come into her life as we often do with friends or shows or programs or 
doctors uh, on TV shows and websites that are counseling us that we shouldn't be listening to. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan is saying, paraphrase, God is wrong, you will not surely die, but sin will have pleasant consequences. All right, so whether we're talking about eating a pomegranate (laughs) or an apple or whatever it might have been, or sneaking out of the bedroom window as a teenager, or stealing a cookie, or lying on our tax return, whatever it might be. That was for Lindsay. Okay. Uh, Whatever it might be, it's always the same root. That God is wrong, no consequences are going to take place. In fact, it's going to be pleasant consequences, if anything. Satan is saying that God is a liar and that God is withholding something from you. And if you believe this, then you will sin to obtain that thing. You will sin to get that relationship, that possession, or that experience. If you pursue it, the result will be dissatisfaction and distrust in God. Satan says, you are actually wonderful and have great potential. And God is not allowing you to obtain these things. This is what we saw in Romans chapter 1. It's exchanging God for what you want. The great exchange. It's that trade-off. All right? Yeah, I am wonderful. Yeah, God is robbing fun from me. I have a lot of potential. God's not allowing me to be all that I can be. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the physical pleasure, the lust of the eyes, the appearance, and the pride of life that puffs us up, gives us some kind of status. We finally see the fall in this historical narrative in verse 6. And just a marker here is the first thing, I think it's out of 5, is we see disobedience. Disobedience In Genesis 3, 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay? So we have disobedience. 2 Corinthians eleven three, and I'm already going to tell you now, it's in my notes like three more times, so, Sorry. <laughs> But it says that I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The deception had taken place. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. She took it. She had been deceived, so she took it and she ate now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 through 14, in talking about who may be a pastor or an elder and, and have this office of teaching and expounding the word to the church, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, in this context of 1 Timothy, and we went over it two weeks ago or three weeks ago, and then about five weeks before that, we went through a similar teaching, just of role and God's ordained role and authority and gender and differences and created order and things like that. But we see in 1 Timothy 2, like, that there's some cultural things that are addressed there, and it speaks towards the heart. And then we see some things that are not limited to culture that speaks to the heart, and it goes clear back to the Genesis account of creation, and that is who is to have a role of authority over uh, the church. Okay, And so in this case, he's speaking uh, that, um, or he goes back to the creation account, and he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So there's order that's shown here, created order. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, Adam sinned, no doubt about it, a bad sin, all right? Just as bad as Eve's sin, but it was different, <laughs> all right? And Eve's sin, it's mentioned many times, and we just read it in 2 Corinthians 11.3, it began, it was fostered by being deceived. And so as having a role or a function within the church of handling the doctrine and handling truth and teaching it, uh, there needs to be that uh, guard up against deception. I want to read from Jameson Fawcett Brown, great Bible scholars, as well as Warren Wearsby here, bring a little explanation from the First Timothy passage. As Eve was deceived by the serpent, uh, Adam was persuaded by his wife. Looks like I cut off uh, the first part of that sentence there, sorry. Uh, Adam was persuaded by his wife. Genesis 3.17, he hearkened unto the voice of his wife. But in Genesis 3.13, Eve says, The serpent beguiled me. Being more easily deceived, she more easily deceives, as Bengal says in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Last in being, she was first in sin. Indeed, she alone was deceived. The subtle serpent knew that she was the weaker vessel, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says. He therefore tempted her, not Adam. She yielded to the temptation of sense and the deceits of Satan. He, to conjugal love, hence, in the order of God's judicial sentence, the serpent, the prime offender, stands first, the woman who was deceived next, and the man persuaded by his wife last. In Romans 5.12, Adam is represented as the first transgressor, but there, is no but, but there no reference is made to Eve. And Adam is regarded as the head of the sinning race. Hence, as here, 1 Timothy 2.11, in Genesis 3.16, woman's subjection is represented as the consequence of her being deceived. Being deceived here. The oldest manuscripts read, the compound Greek verb for the simple, having been seduced by deceit, implying how completely Satan succeeded in deceiving her. Okay, so there was major deception that had taken place there. Now, I like what Wearsby says. We must keep in mind that priority does not mean superiority. Okay, so as we speak of role and the function of a, of a man in the church or the function of a woman in the church, doesn't mean the man's better at all. All right? doesn't mean the woman is less gifted or talented at all or able, all right? but it's the order of things. And it's interesting, just in uh, my experience, uh, oftentimes 
uh, it's often that the women are deceived into sin, and it's often that the man isn't deceived, he's just full on hardening his heart and stiffening his neck against God and wants to do what he wants to do. Okay, That's just my experience from many <laughs> hard conversations that I've had in my office. Okay, um, And it's certainly not every case. You know, men do get deceived, and women do just full on heart in their heart and do what they want to do. But it seems that uh, experience would back up a lot of what we're seeing tonight, how it happens um, with, with sin here. So uh, I'm sure there's lots of questions about that. I'm not saying it all, got it all figured out. Just reading a few different verses that seem to commentate on themselves there. So uh, let's look at James real quick. We'll take a break from the Genesis account, and then we'll go back. Three steps to sin from James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Uh, so let no one say when he's tempted there in verse 13, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So we want to know that sin didn't come from God. The origin of sin, God wasn't the author of it. Uh, but each one was tempted when, step one, he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. As the Genesis account says, Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Step two, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And you read of the Genesis account that she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her. It's important to underscore that. We'll see why in a little bit. And he ate. Uh, this Sermon Illustrations website says, Have you ever taken a bite of a nice, shiny, juicy red apple only discover that you are not alone in enjoying your snack? As the old joke says, what's worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm? Finding half a worm. How does a worm get inside an apple? Perhaps you think the worm burrowed in from the outside. No, scientists have discovered that the worm comes from inside. But how does he get in there? Simple. An insect lays an egg in the apple blossom. Sometime later, the worm hatches in the heart of the apple, then eats his way out. Sin, like the worm, begins in the heart and works out through a person's thoughts, words, and actions. As Augustine says in the Confessions of St. Augustine, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. It's that Romans 1, de-godding God, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, exchanging the worship that belongs to God, and beginning to worship the created thing instead. Augustine continued, Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Notice where Adam was when all of this was going down. 
He was not behaving as the spiritual leader in the home, protecting his family from temptation. Adam will be the one held responsible for the sin that would spread to all mankind. And we'll get there in Romans 5 in a little bit. He was our father, and he was with her, and he did nothing. The Puritans used to say, when Adam was away, Eve went astray. But that's not what happened. Adam was uh, standing there next to her, we read in the James account. <clears throat> what was Adam doing? He was doing nothing. And one of the worst things that men can do is nothing. He said nothing. He did nothing. Some men abuse their authority and some avoid their responsibility and abandon their responsibility. We're involved in nothing, doing nothing. It's that sin of omission that we spoke of. Not blessing our brothers and sisters, not serving in the church, not defending the gospel, not fighting against Satan. Silent cowards. This is Driscoll, the footnote says. I would say you are worthless, but you bear the image of God. And so there's the first point of disobedience. There's the second point of cover-up in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So they tried to cover up their sin, sewing fig leaves for themselves, making themselves coverings. Sin brought distance, messed with their intimate relationship, they became foolish, hiding from God, which is the third point here, the hiding. Why don't we have uh, Kayla read the Genesis 3.8? Try to get you guys some reading time. Keeps you awake, I know. So this is the first account of the game Hide and Seek in Scripture. Adam, who was made by God, for God, and in the image of God, I might say to worship God, was hiding from God. In Genesis 2.25, they were both naked and, and not ashamed. But here we see they're covering themselves. They're ashamed. And Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And of course, like the first John uh, 1, 9 passage, I think it is, that says if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's that confession to the Lord. And then James speaks of when we confess our sins to one another, there's healing that takes place. On top of the forgiveness, healing takes place when the sin is exposed but they were hiding there in the garden. And verse 9, Jason, Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Who did God call? He called Adam. Who did God hold responsible? Adam. What gender was it? It was the man. Where are you? A great question. A great question, listening to a Truth For Life Alistair Begg sermon today, and just there's so much in that question, including kindness and compassion and grace. Because in that question, where are you, God begins the process of the gospel. He's initiating relationship with sinners. And uh, he uh, could just squash him right there, kill him. He, told, he warned him. 
the minute you eat of that tree, you will surely die. I mean, boom, you know, she should have died right then. But God in his grace begins to work with them and pursue them and, and address their sin and confront them in their sin and correct them in their sin and work out the plan to redeem them from their sin. Or I should say, unveil the plan. He didn't have to work it out. He had it planned. Uh, and we see that... Uh, <clears throat> Now he's saying, he's taking the sin upon himself here, Adam does. It's not a we thing, it's an I thing. In Genesis 3:10, Kevin, you want to read 10 and 11 there? So God was direct and to the point. And we can learn something from this. When uh, bearing one another's burden and trying to bring our brothers and sisters out of sin, direct into the point, where are you? All right? Call the brother, call the sister. Where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? All right? That's kindness to do that. It's grace. It's, it's the beginning of the redemption. Who told you? Who told you that? Have you eaten? Have you done this? Have, just point blank. <laughs> Have you done this? To God, it was the bottom line. Did you do what I told you not to do? I told you not to do that. In verses 12 and 13, the blame game starts up. This is our fourth point. They ex try to excuse themselves. And we do the same thing, excusing ourselves. Uh, Easy, are you able to read Genesis 3, 12 and 13 there? I don't know, man. I don't know you well enough to know your reading skills. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> well, I saw your pen. Why don't you show everyone your pen here real quick? <laughs> Was I really that wrong in assuming? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, love you, buddy. The devil made me do it. Yeah. Um, what did you say, Flip Wilson? That's an old comedian way back in the day. He used to have a show on The Devil Made Me Do It. Oh, really? Might be a little before my time. <laughs> okay, so the woman he gave me to be with me, she gave me it. All right, so he blames it on the woman, but then he goes even farther than that. He blames it on God. Adam points to Eve, but blames God for giving Eve to him in the first place. So ultimately, God, it's your fault. All right, the blame game, excusing ourselves. Eve points to the serpent. This woman doesn't blame the husband. Second Corinthians 11.3 again there shows the, the deception that took place there. In, in Eve's uh, leading up to her sin. And as that step three from James' passage says, in sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Genesis 2.17, but 
Out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So James just affirms there the Genesis passage that sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And in verses 14 through 19, we have the curse and we have death shown. In Genesis 3.15, Blaine, will you read that? So beautiful passage here, Um, prophecy of Jesus, it's the first in scripture called the Proto-Evangelium, okay, Proto meaning first, and Evangel, E-V-E-N-G-E-L-I-U-M. What that means, Proto-Evangelium means the first gospel. The first heralding of the good news. Uh, Jesus will come as the dragon slayer. Satan will harm him, but he will slay the dragon, Driscoll says. In Genesis 3.16, Ginger, will you read that? So this explains in birth the, the hard things there, miscarriages, great pain and labor, the pain of raising children. Uh, but the woman would not trust, as a result of this, would not trust, work with, or follow the leadership of her husband. It would be a bit of her bent towards sin, you might say. She would not submit or have struggles submitting to follow her husband's leadership. But the husband would respond in like kind, with tyrannical, abusive, and unloving, heavy-handed rulership. See, both of these are parts of the fall, parts of the curse. Uh, it's not the given, the given the good, you know, I got your back to the man there that you'll rule over her. It's actually uh, the response to her sin would be sin on his part. Um, Genesis 3, 17, uh, there, Stephanie? So we have the curse of the earth now. Romans 8, 20 through 22, because as a blank in it, I'll read it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So this first part of Romans 8.20 kind of opens up like a rap song or something. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Futility speaks of uselessness, frustration, vanity, grasping for the wind, laboring and laboring, and still comes under the banner of futility. That day in the garden, the creation was subjected to futility. And who is responsible for this uh, subjection? Adam, Eve, Satan? Who subjected it to futility? It actually was God. God in his sovereignty 
He was the only one who had the authority, and he did this, gave it over to entropy. This subjection was a judicial decree on sin. As I think it was Tim Chaddock that said, the account of the fall is on a cosmic level all throughout the scripture. The responsibility and effects of the fall and consequences are laid at our doorstep. This curse was not fallen into naturally, but was a divine judgment for sin. Genesis 3.18, Aaron. Both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. So weeds and thistles and toiling. Really, you've seen my backyard, which is what we're talking about here, where flowers grow like, uh, or what if flowers grew like weeds, and weeds grew like flowers? Not just that there's suffering, but why there's suffering here in Genesis 3.18. C.S. Lewis says, suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We have ratified the decision our parents Adam and Eve made. We're going to see that in just a little bit. We are by nature the children of wrath. Pain and suffering have been allowed, not because God is not good, but because he's so good that he can't tolerate evil. That shows us how bad sin is, that sin is that bad. Whenever you see suffering of any magnitude, you say sin is that bad, sin is that horrific. Anytime you see creation suffering, it's God's megaphone blasting that sin is that bad. It's a wake-up call. Suffering's a wake-up call to show us how horrifying sin is. Some of us see this as an overreaction on God's part. It's not that bad. We're just hoping that God would wink at sin, you know, or sweep sin underneath the rug. But he's just. He deals with sin. We don't understand sin in its proper context. We don't grasp the great holiness and righteousness of God. Not only does suffering show us how bad sin is and how bad the fall and rebellion against God is, but it shows us how great God's love is and how much he endured to redeem the believer. Creation, Romans 8 tells us, is groaning and longing for its restoration. And so Mark's gospel, speaking of the Great Commission, says, Go and preach the gospel to all creation, to every creature. It's kind of the new green or the old green, telling the world that it's going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored. Genesis three nineteen through 24. Cheryl, you want to read that? So in verses 19, 21, and 24, we see physical and spiritual death as a result of the fall for humans, for death for the animals that had to supply skins to cover their nakedness, 
Uh, we have death to paradise on earth. And, uh, and then in Revelation 20, we see the eternal spiritual death called the second death. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And there was a danger there, leaving Adam and Eve in the garden. If these sinners would eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in their sinful state. It was a gift of God for us to die so that we wouldn't stay in these uh, decaying bodies that have sinful natures for all eternity. God in his grace kicked them out so they could die and rise and live forever without sin. James 4, 1 and 7 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And then just a few verses later says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Where does my sinful nature come from? Up to the fall, Adam was morally innocent. When he sinned, he by nature became a sinner. Because through Adam came every human being, Adam was the federal head of the human race. Like begets like, dog begets dog, apples beget apples, humans beget humans. And because Adam was a sinner, every human that came from him was a sinner except Christ. Even Adam's son, who was made in his image, was a sinner who murdered his brother. This is passed on depravity, known as inherited sin. Just as we inherit physical characteristics from our parents, we inherit our sinful nature from our great-great-grandfather, Adam. King David lamented this condition of fallen humanity in Psalm 51, verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Is it Lou? Is it your turn? You want to read that Psalm 58, 3, and then Barb, you can read Ephesians 2, 3, and Nikki, Romans 3, 23. So this is what we call inherited sin, okay? And there's these three types of sin, as we're going to get into the first Adam and versus the second Adam. The first Adam, John Corson called him the Adam bomb because he bombed, all right? And then we have the second Adam, Jesus, okay? But uh, before we do that, just know that's the inherited sin that we all inherited through our nature, through Adam. Uh, it's that blank there for you. Romans 5, 12 through 19. John, you got that long passage, bud? You don't have a big pen in your hand, so you should be good. Ooh, it makes a good throwing weapon, huh?
Whenever you're tired, just pass the torch, buddy. Good job, John. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, So you've heard us talk about, you know, Jesus is the true and better Joseph, you know. Um, Paul does a really good Tim Keller impersonation back there in Romans chapter 5, you know. He says Jesus is the true and better Adam. You know, how Adam sinned and that sin and death and the curse spread through him to everybody. So too through Jesus' good act and righteous act, a gift is spread to everybody and eternal life to all who would believe. Um, but we see there the inherited sin that we all had through Adam, and that Adam is the one that's held accountable uh, for that sin. First um, Corinthians fifteen twenty one over there, Paul, and twenty two. So, um, some of these just note things here. Um, so, Adam received sin, death, condemnation, unrighteousness. He was disobedient, born. Hell is a, is a result of that. Jesus received, uh, through Jesus we receive sinlessness, life, justification, rather than condemnation, righteousness, obedience. We're born again. And we go to heaven. Uh, Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Adam, as our federal head, represented us well. We would have probably done the same thing, maybe even worse. Um, and our natural proclivity is to repeat these sins of Adam and Eve. So uh, there's uh, inherited sin, there's imputed sin. The word impute is used in both financial and legal settings. The Greek word translated imputing means to take something that belongs to someone and credit it to another's account. Before the law of Moses was given, sin was not imputed to man, although men were still sinners because of inherited sin. After the law was given, sins committed in violation of the law were imputed or accounted to them. That's what Will just read. As we'll see later, the principle of imputation will be used to the benefit of mankind in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, skip that and read it later. Then there's personal sin. That which is committed every day by every human being because we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam, 
We commit individual personal sins, everything from seemingly innocent untruths clear over to murder. We see from the accounts of Scripture that our sin does not affect just us. Uh, Adam's sin sin did not just affect him, but the entire world. Uh, And our sin, the same way, all the way down to our own family. Joshua, the sin of Achan. Uh, You remember that they weren't to steal from, was it the Battle of Jericho that that they weren't to steal from? And uh, uh, and, and Achan grabbed a wedge of gold and and a... a rug, I believe it was, and hid them under the floor of his tent. And because of that, they were uh, the Israelites were losing in a in a battle. And so the Lord spoke that it's because someone sinned and uh, coveted those things and stole them and hid them. And so the Holy Spirit narrowed it down to the very tribe, to the very family, to the very one who'd stolen it. And we see it's just very sad, and it's not time to read it, but uh, that Achan and his whole family were killed there. Because of his sin, they were put to death. Um, and then, uh, in, in the Second Samuel account, seven of sons, seven of Second Samuel, seven of sons, Saul's. Oh gosh, seven of Saul's sons were hanged because of Saul's genocide against the Gibeonites. We see that sin affects more than just us. And in Numbers 16, a similar story to Achan's is the story of Korah and his family being swallowed up by the earth because of grumbling and complaining against Moses. Also, 250 men fell. And so to understand all of that, you need to understand Genesis 3 and the fall, that sin is destructive. It brings death and disorder. That's why God hates sin and has made a way to atone and redeem from it and for it. Proverbs 7, 23 through 27 says, uh, speaking of sexual sin and adultery, uh, this strong man, it was like a, as he went into the harlot, and it was like an arrow striking his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, nor stray into her paths. For she cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. As the sayings goes, sin will make you do what you never thought you'd do. It'll make you go where you never thought you'd go, stay longer than you ever thought you'd stay, and pay a price you never thought you'd pay. How, been, how bad is my sinful nature? Romans 3.10-18 uh, through 18 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When we sin, we are still image bearers of God. We studied that two weeks ago or three weeks ago. In Genesis 5, we see that even after the fall. All of our person is stained and marred and broken, including our mind, which causes us we need to test and doubt our analysis of things. We need to be humble. Our emotions have been affected by sin. 
So if we're emotional, we need to doubt our feelings and test our feelings of the Word of God. Our will and our body, all of who we are has been tainted by sin. Sin has affected the totality of our person. Now, we have a conscience. We are made in the image of God. There are people that still do decent things every now and then, but that does not make them righteous, and that does not make them innocent before God. Quickly, some sinful views of sin. We're going to go through these next two pages pretty quick. It's two pages on my iPad. I'm not sure if it's two pages for you. Sinful views of sin. Thinking that sin is just breaking some rules. These rules come from God's character, So you're breaking his nature and violating your relationship with him. Sinful view of sin. That Jesus died for my sins, so I'm forgiven and I don't need to take it seriously. If we're really saved, we love Jesus and hate sin. We're paranoid by sin. That we're afraid we won't confess. I'm sorry. You are so paranoid by sin that you are afraid you won't confess before you die and you're going to go to hell. Sinful view of sin, that God knows my heart, even though my life's bad. But Jesus says that your life is an echo of your heart. Sin is fun. So at the risk of not being dull, I'll sin to be a fun person. But the Holy Spirit convicts us so that we hate sin. It's not a sin if no one gets hurt, even though we just studied that everyone around us, including our community, our nation, Our church, our friends, our family, our loved ones are affected by our sin. Secret sin doesn't count. God knows, and it counts. Those around you may not know what the sin is, but they know something is wrong. There's discernment there. If it's popular or cultural, it's not a sin. Wicked is always popular. Christians make everything a sin issue when it is not. New seasons of life, differences of opinions and conscience, uh, differences in our conscience, denominational choices or transitions. Uh, And so a sinful view of sin, we would make things sinful that God doesn't make sinful. Some sinful responses to sin. Minimizing sin, saying it's not that big of a deal or you're overreacting. And remember, this is all equipping you guys because you're going to be in situations... (laughs) You're going to be hearing this stuff. I'm the exception of the rule or to the rule. I know it's true, true for everyone else, but not for me. Everyone thinks that they're the exception. Blame shifting, as we saw Adam and Eve do. How we respond is our responsibility. Uh, hardcore mercy can actually be a... Uh, Sinful response to sin. Everybody's a victim, giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. Proverbs tells us everybody seems right until the other side is heard. Diversion, where we change the subject. Oftentimes when you're counseling somebody, they'll tell you how they feel about you telling them that they sinned. All right, And so what happens is a diversion rather than dealing with their sin. Partial confession, tell a little of what you did, but not telling all of what you did. Worldly sorrow, which is sorry you got caught, sorry that people were affected, I'm not sorry that I did it, I'm not sorry that I sinned against God, de-godded God. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Excuse making? I have a good reason that I sinned. Here's the whole story. I'm a victim. I can't help it. Because of my genetics, my mom or dad or uncle did this or that. I'm poor. My culture made me do it. Victims often victimize others. Mere confession without repentance. This is agreement with no change. It's honesty without humility. Telling people they are good people and telling them to try harder next time. You'll do better next time. That's a sinful response to sin. God's response to sin is that he judges sin. Here's your sin and here are the consequences of your sin. God gives grace and pursues them. He speaks to them. He teaches them about what they did like a father teaching his kids. He covers shame. He sends them away so they will be delivered from sin and death. He makes the promise that Jesus is coming, that Jesus is the second Adam. As we look at the Romans road in the book of Romans, Romans 6 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans ten thirteen, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verses 9 through 11, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Our sins were imputed into Jesus' account, and his righteousness was imputed into ours. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Way to stick with it, guys. Hardcore. I was looking for a way to break it into two studies. I just didn't know where that breaking point would be. So, sorry about that. Um, so, sin is real. Sin is real. All right? And we like to sugarcoat things. We like to dismiss things. We like the blame game. We like excuses. But sin is sin, and it's real, and it's destructive. And it's, you know, its root is down in our hearts. And its root is down at a worship issue in our hearts. And, uh, and it's, it's like that Romans 1. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it's exchanging worship that belongs to God the creator and taking instead the created things and treasuring the created things and worshiping the created things. And so, as we've really been learning in, um, in our... Paul Tripp book, um, man, look for the heart issues in these places. Look for the idolatry issues, because the human heart is an idol factory. And uh, the, the sins that we see coming out of people's lives uh, can be traced back to where they began to worship and cherish and hope and find comfort and pleasure in, in things that aren't God. All right, and we look to those things. And then when those things are tampered with or attempted to be taken away from us, we lose it. All right? 
And so uh, we've, we've been learning that in the Paul trip book. But um, it's 10 till 8. I think uh, maybe we'll have uh, just some time of uh, finishing up some soup and stuff. Any questions to any of this? I know it was a lot, uh, a lot to go through. And uh, maybe if you have some questions or you make some marks and read some notes, we can revisit it at the pastor's panel that looks like next week we'll be doing that. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.